Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Dr. Adam Rutherford crams a brief history of everyone who ever lived into an hour to tell us the stories in our genes. Dr. Adam Rutherford is a science writer and broadcaster. He studied genetics at University College London, and during his PhD on the developing eye, he was part of a team that identified the first genetic cause of a form of childhood blindness. He has written and presented many award-winning series and programmes for the BBC, including the flagship weekly Radio 4 programme Inside Science, The Cell for BBC Four, and Playing God on the Rise of Synthetic Biology for the leading science strand Horizon, as well as writing for the science pages of The Guardian. His first book, Creation, which we talked about in the previous Little Atoms, which was on the origin of life and synthetic biology, was published in 2013 to outstanding reviews and was shortlisted for the Wellcome Trust Prize. And Adam's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, The Story in Our Genes. Adam, welcome back. Hello, Little Atoms. Hello, Neil. What's this book about, then? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a pretty ambitious title, isn't it? It is. Um, Well, I thought having dealt with the whole of life on Earth in my last last book, I'd just restrict it to just the whole of human life Mm -hmm. this time around. No, what what it is, is um, it's an attempt to look at human history from our deep prehistory right up to modern history using a what is effectively a new tool in the historian's tool shed, which is DNA. And it's only been available to us in the last few years that we can challenge or reassess or reanalyse and verify some of the stories from history using this this new source. And it's really important to me that I don't, um, you know, it's not better than traditional history forms, it's complementary to. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, his, history, archaeology, medicine, psychology, these are much longer standing academic disciplines than genetics and genetics is the sort of new kid on the block but it is it's had a profound effect on our understanding of of human history in just five years so it felt like the right time to say there's a new way of analyzing human history and and that's what i'm doing in the book now you do a little uh, recap at the beginning about you know the history of genetics and the history of life and and we did all of that when we talked about creation so we're not we're not going to go into that i just want to get straight into uh the descent of man, mm. and um, and of course we'll have all have seen from our, our school books. And everyone will be familiar with that the diagram of um, you know a chimp on the left hand side and a, a few slightly straightening up people, and then a guy with an umbrella and a briefcase at the far <laughs> side. Yeah. 
as a sort of illustration of like how we got here, how modern humans got here. What's up with that then? Yeah, I've got two big problems with that. So the original is called The March of Progress and it comes from a, a French textbook and it has, as you say, you know, it's, it's universally recognised and when we were growing up, it, it is in every textbook and even if you go to Down House today where Darwin did, did all of his best work, you can buy mugs with The March of Progress on it and it is problematic. It's wrong in two ways and I think should be outlawed. The, the first way in which it's wrong is... It implies direction to our evolution. It says that we, there was a point in history where we were monkeys and over time we marched in this line, progressing each step. We became more upright, bigger, sturdier, um, and then eventually we're upright and white and bearded and using tools. And, and what it says is this is how we got here. Now, evolution has no direction, mm-hmm. and we know that. Any, any implication in that diagram that there was direction from being an ape or a lemur or an earlier primate to being a white bearded man with a spear is just not how evolution works. Each one of those organisms on the march of progress is as evolved as anything else. So that's the first thing that's wrong with it. The second thing is more just sort of factual, new data. So again, when we were growing up in the textbooks, we had these nice, neat, branching family trees populated by some of the the ancient humans or earlier primate species that we're in, we know about you know things like lucy or australopithecus afarensis or uh, homo erectus and homo heidelbergensis and all, and all those ones and we, we drew these nice nice tree-like patterns and that said this is how we got here now with genetics and with more specimens and genetics complementing paleoanthropology so the study of old bones we don't know how we got here. It's effectively impossible to draw a line between any human species from the last 100,000 years. We can draw dotted lines at best, but there is no tree. I love, there's a diagram in, figure one in this is, is from Chris Stringer. It's the sort of doyen of, of paleontopology in this country. And it is, it's the best attempt at a tree that we have now. We don't have branches anymore. We have sort of blobs. And there's a huge section at the bottom left which is just blurred out. And it, and it says uh, unknown relationships, which basically is, you know, scientific code for saying no idea. And that's great. That's how science should be. Mm-hmm. You know, it, we, we don't know how we got here. The more we know about our deep history, our prehistory, the more we realise that, that we've been, if not wrong, just much more confident than we should have been with less data. So that's, that's good science. Paleoanthropology is it's a relatively recent thing anyway. It's only a couple of hundred years or so since anybody discovered the first ancient human remains. Yes. First fossilised human remains. So now DNA, now you know genetics, what difference has that made? An unbelievable amount. And it really is only six years old in any sort of measurable, meaningful form. So yeah, you're right. So the first three non-homo sapiens... Uh, human specimens found were all Neanderthals, not identified as Neanderthals until the second one in the 1860s. And since then, we've discovered you know hundreds, dozens, thousands of, of bones and different species. We name new species, I think, a little bit too casually. And also the whole concept of species in human evolution, I think, is deeply problematic. But, you know, the, the first one identified was Neanderthals, Homo neanderthalensis. And we know the separation of them from the bones looks like about 600,000 years ago, something like that. And in 2009 and 10, we sequenced the Neanderthal genome in total. 
which is a phenomenal thing to do. You know, that's only like seven or eight years after we sequenced living humans' genome, but managed to get a full genome out. And it said, you know, it was amazing treasure trove of information. But the one that we all know about, which I think is not that even that controversial anymore, is that, that most people know that almost all Europeans carry Neanderthal DNA within them. And the way that Neanderthal DNA is distributed across the world is, is geographically restricted in a way which, which is interesting to understanding our own evolution. But the key thing it says is that we interbred with Neanderthals, and not only do we interbreed with them, we interbred with them a lot and successfully. And so then you get into trouble with the whole concept of a species. So if a species is defined as something, two organisms that can't have um, offspring that are fertile themselves, that's the most common species definition you and me, I can tell by looking at you that we carry Neanderthal DNA, both mm-hmm. of us, which means that our ancestors successfully had sex with Neanderthals and their offspring were fertile, which according to the old species definition means they cannot have been a separate species from us. Now, I had this conversation with Alice Roberts, right? You know, friend of the programme, um, friend of science. I had this conversation with her about five years ago and <laughs> she sort of adamantly said... No, they were a different species to us. And then about um, six months ago, when she was reading the book and we were talking about this, she sort of grudgingly admitted that genetics has been useful in the end in revising our understanding. A lot of paleoanthropologists have been hostile to it, but I think it's inevitable now that uh, we have to change the way we think about human evolution because genetics says something different. The tricky thing, the ironic thing, I guess, here is that, you know, most human remains most ancient human remains are found in you know in africa in deserts and places where they're where it's hot where they're more likely to have been you know things are preserved but of course that means there's no dna the dna has been destroyed so you're much more likely to find dna in cold places or damp places even wherein the remains that you find are not as good. That's absolutely true. And, you know, as ever, nothing is perfect. But you're right. We know much more about the ancient DNA of northern climes because it's colder and in drier places where DNA has a better chance of survival of being preserved because it's pretty robust. But the more you move into Africa where it's hot and possibly humid, the less likely, the more difficult it is to retrieve ancient DNA from old bones. So we do know much more about Europe and Russia and that those, those migrations after out of Africa than we do for the rest of the world put together. There's also a sort of Eurocentric view on this. Much, much of the research is done in Europe and in the States who are also focused on Europe. We, we don't know nearly enough disproportionately much less about the Native Americans and the indigenous people of the Americas, partly for that reason, but, but also there are some really interesting cultural barriers in there. So there's, there's a sort of long-standing hostility towards Europeans, mm-hmm. which was reinforced in the 90s by scientists behaving badly, taking samples with permission and then using them to do stuff uh, to test for diseases without permission. And also the idea that if you could identify where a tribe was from, which you can't, but if you could, then the attempts at reparations for all the moving, uh, you know, the, the ill treatment and genocide that Europeans inflicted upon Native Americans, the reparations might be altered. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, Native Americans have been shifted around over hundreds of years by European settlers. And if it turns out that, you know, you think that you're a member of the, the Sioux Nation and genetics told you that you're actually a member of a completely different tribe which it can't do, 
But if it could do that, then you might you might think that you're you know, not uh, not entitled to some of those reparation rights. So we, we know far less than we should do about the Americas. Let's talk about some of the the other species of early humans, and I want to talk about Neanderthals in a slightly more detail afterwards. But the others, there's about what about seven or eight now other ones. Well, I mean, the number is is changing rapidly. So, so if you if you think that again, you know, when, when I was growing up, we knew of in the, in the last fifty thousand years, basically it was us and Neanderthals, mm-hmm. and possibly the end of Homo erectus. But we don't have any DNA from Homo erectus. So we can we can all of the stories in the book are ones that are informed by DNA. And since then, you know, in the last ten years, we discovered the Flores people of Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Now we couldn't get DNA out of them because it was too hot and humid, and their bones were not actually fossilized. And that's a shame because they're a, an odd island group of of people, probably derived from an earlier Homo erectus, probably distant cousins from us, but still lived in the recent enough past that we should be able to get DNA out of them mm-hmm. if the conditions were right. So far, the conditions haven't been right. So that's a shame. So that's, that's, that's one. And then in 2009, there was this amazing, earth-shattering discovery of a, just a fingertip and a tooth in a cave in Siberia, in Denisova. And a tooth and a fingertip are not enough to define a new species morphologically, but they got DNA out of, out of the tooth. The tooth. Teeth are very good for protecting DNA. And... The Denisova individual, who was a teenage girl, was too different from both Neanderthal genomes and Homo sapiens genomes to be either of the two. So at that point, again, species concepts becomes problematic because it is the, the Denisovan girl represents a new species of human from 50,000 years ago. But we can't define her as a new species because species are defined by morphological characteristics. So that's annoying. And then we see Denisovan DNA all across the... The further east you go, the higher proportions you you see in living people. It peaks in Melanesia where it reaches about 10%, which is massive. And then when you compare Denisovans with Neanderthals with Homo sapiens, there's another gap in there, which is that they're not similar enough to each other. The, The hypothesis being that the differences must be accounted for by an unknown species of human and we, we can tell when that happened, but we can't tell what that human was. And I, again, I think that's, that's close to magic. We're identifying human species based not on any physical remains, just mm-hmm. DNA. It may be that we know the species already, but we haven't got DNA from that species. Mm-hmm. Chris Stringer thinks it's probably uh, Homo heidelbergensis, and it may well be. But until that identification, that is just an unimaginable breakthrough 10 years ago, five years ago even, we're talking about identifying species that we don't know of any physical remains, which is nuts. And those are the, the other species, which are the ones that are too old for us really to be able to extract any DNA from, like Homo erectus to you know, Agaster and Homo habilis, is it? Mm. The handyman. The handyman, yeah. Um, all of those. Are these species, if I can, problematic to call them species, but of all of these different groups cohabiting like around at the, roughly the same time are we talking how far we're going back like at least half a million years if not yeah in, in, in fact longer with some of those yeah. those species that we call homo so in the genus homo but again yeah, they, they some of them have clearly have morphological differences which are easy to define 
And that's traditionally how we've said this is a separate species. Mm -hmm. But it becomes where it becomes interesting and difficult is is when you're at the margins. When one one specimen looks a lot like another, but we put it in this category and not in this category. And that's where it becomes interesting, and that's where scientific debates and arguments happen, and that and that's all fine. But I think what is really clear, and I think we're talking about the first chapter in the book here, so the you know prehistory. I think the main conclusion, if there is one conclusion, is that human history, or at least human prehistory, is far, far more messy than we ever thought it was. And that we weren't a discrete population who marched across the land in that sort of, I describe it as the sort of dad's army arrows. That's how we draw migratory patterns of ancient humans. And it's just a narrative, a simplistic narrative, which is I'm, I'm beginning to think is not helpful scientifically. When we talk about migration in ancient humans, the distances and times that we're talking about are often thousands of miles over tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And I think the word migration conjures up images of Syrian refugees or contemporary migration, the way we think about migration today. There's nothing like that. I mean, we're, we're talking about group, small groups, tribal groups of humans moving at a rate of a mile a year. It's like moving from Kentish Town to Tufnell Park. Mm-hmm. And over 100,000 years, they've gone from central africa or east africa to siberia or even to australia but the rate of change is just phenomenally slow i'm ben goldacre you're listening to resonance fm and this is little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture neanderthals then so you you've already mentioned that like, you can recognize that both of us have have got their dna and that's basically because we're europeans fundamentally yep. and there was obviously this, you know, crossbreeding, cross habitation between Homo sapiens and, and Neanderthals over the year, and like, you know, how they were gradually wiped out or whatever, if that's even the right way to describe it, is debatable. But looking at the idea about our own DNA and how much we have, mm. now you've had this measured. Mm. You've got. Well, it comes out at 2.7 from a commercial company, 23andMe, yeah. which is standard average for Europeans. Yeah. That's average, very average. Yeah, genetics. Three point two percent. Really? Yeah. Well, that is high. It is high. Isn't From twenty three me. Yeah. Well, how about that? Three point two percent. That is unusually high and quite interesting. The commercial companies tend to test higher than academic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they're overrating it definitely. But yeah, pro- probably. Um, but what does that even mean? So, like, you know, so I have more Neanderthal DNA than you do. Yeah. By actually quite a significant amount. Yeah. But I mean, what does that even represent? Yeah, sure. So, well, it represents a not insignificant proportion of your genome. Mm-hmm. So, three point seven percent, or even two point seven percent, of your total DNA is actually more than your Y chromosome. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, proportionally, you're more Neanderthal than you are man. <laughs> <laughs> Both of us. Which is a kind of odd, meaningless thing to say, but it's quite fun. But it's not grouped together in a particular mm-hmm. area. And what it shows is that we talk about gene flow events, which is a nice euphemism for sex, but it doesn't really mean one individual having sex with another individual. Gene flow events really refer to population yeah. level breeding. And from the we can we can tell the statistics of, of DNA means now that we we can tell lots of things about behaviour back in the day when these gene flow events were taking place. So for example, we can tell to a certain extent, whether it was males with females, male homo sapiens with, with 
female Neanderthals or whichever way around. We can also tell, much more interestingly, I think, we can tell, and this is relatively new, we can tell whether the genes that have entered the other genome, introgression is the idea, whether they're being selected for. And, and this, I think, again, is, is a completely sort of new area of genetics that we can say, well, we, we no longer rely on... We don't actually need to know the phenotype, so the physical characteristic, to say whether it was selected or not. We can look at the genes and say, using some pretty sophisticated techniques, we can say, well, this area of the genome has been undergoing natural selection. And then you can look in that area of the genome and say, well, what is, what's in there? What genes are in there? And the, the closer we get to, to the present, the easier it becomes. But one of the things about Neanderthals is it, it, it looks like that whatever genes introgressed from Neanderthals to Homo sapiens, they are very slowly being negatively selected. They, they're not majorly deleterious. They don't cause any major diseases. But over time, it looks like that number is is going down. And it may well be the case that we've inherited bits and pieces of, geno- of, of genome from Neanderthals which do have a subtle genetic effect on us in that we might... Uh, there, there is a, a gene which we inherited from Neanderthals, some people did, that it slightly increases the risk of diabetes and, and various things like that. It's none, none of these are major shifts in evolution. They're not, it's not like we're defined by our Neanderthal DNA, but it just shows that historically we were not nearly as distantly related as we thought and were perfectly capable of having healthy, fertile offspring with Neanderthals. We know that Neanderthal population size was always small, much smaller than than Homo sapiens, and we know that the overlap between Neanderthals and humans, uh, modern humans, in time and space was short, and yes, they did go extinct. Although they live on in us, in our genomes, we're not... We're not Neanderthals. We are separate from them. We, we carry their genes. Their legacy lives on with us. But the, the people, the tribal groups that physically look like Neanderthals, they are now gone. Now, we always thought, you know, the very, the very idea of the Neanderthal conjures up this idea of them being like a sort of, you know, a hunched, big, schooled cave person. Mm. But now, you know, we believe that, you know, they sewed clothes and made art and things mm. and, you know, had... had quite advanced societies. One of the questions that's always been debated about them was whether or not they could talk. Mm. And you talk about this in the book, and I think it's it's sort of interesting in terms of the, you know, the gene that suggests that they might talk, the FOXP2 gene, because mm. that tells us something about humans as well. Yeah, it does. It's a funny thing because, uh, I mean, as I, as I write in the book, in 1994 or five, when I was an undergraduate and I did paleoanthropology, just as a module because I was mostly doing genetics, one of the classic essay questions is, did Neanderthals talk? And the answer is, it looks like, based on their morphological, the, the, the structures of their throats and, uh, by implication, the size of their brains and particularly the hyoid bone, which is this, this bone under your neck, which is very, very fine-tuned for speech in us, that it looks like in Neanderthals they were at least capable of a similar level of speech, the sophisticated speech patterning that, that humans do. So that was the answer in 1994. And then, then we did the human gene. 20 years later, we do the, the genome for Neanderthals. And as you say, FOXP2 is a gene that much has been made of in terms of its significance in our own ability to speak. 
and it's clearly very important but in a way it touches on a much bigger theme in the book which is what genes can tell us about characteristics and we many people have talked about foxb2 as being the language gene it's not the language gene it's clear that it's necessary for language but not sufficient because there aren't really any genes for anything mm-hmm. Neanderthals had FOXB2, which was similar to us and different from chimpanzees. And the associations with that particular version of FOXB2 is consistent with the versions that we have that enable our speech. And we know from when it's mutated in in humans that that can cause speech problems in families and in, in pedigrees. So the sort of final conclusion of that section is the answer to that essay, Could Neanderthals Speak?, is exactly the same as it was in 1994, just using a completely new, brand new set of evidence. It had FOXB2 that was similar to us, it had big brains, it had the physical structure, the morphology that that would allow speech. Could they speak? We don't know. (laughs) Just one more thing before we we move away from ancient humans. There's been surprisingly old remains found in the UK relatively recently. Um, much older than we originally thought. Are you talking about Haysborough and yeah. Norfolk? Yeah, so no actual human remains found there, but much evidence of human occupation of culture. So at some point soon, someone will find a, uh, uh, an ancient human bone there, and that will be big news. Actually, there are footprints. There are footprints off the coast that are only visible at low tide. So humans were definitely there in some form over the last... 900,000 years. Well, bearing in mind that that's on the coast, mm. um, I wanted to talk about how they got there, what mm. with us being an island and everything. So there probably is a good reason why no remains have been found, isn't there? Mm. Well, it wasn't the coast then. Um, it was a land bridge, so we, we call it Dogger, um, Doggerland, and only reference these days in the shipping forecast when they talk about Dogger Bank, which is now a sort of sand mound un- underneath the North Sea. But 500,000 years ago, you know, when we're, the, the years that we're talking, it was a land bridge that was continuous with Europe, and the Thames was much further north. And so that route, until the last Ice Age, was the route by which woolly rhinos, woolly mammoths, giant beavers, and some form of humans made it across to what we now call the UK and made it all the way up to you know Carnarvon in, in Wales where we think there are Neanderthal remains or we've discovered Neanderthal remains and all of the various other ancient humans that we found uh, across the UK we're not a human bone rich island and it'd be great to really discover who the first Britons were and when they really turned up. For, for now, you know, we know much more about Europe than we do about the UK. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Adam Rutherford. We're talking about his book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, The Stories in Our Genes. And Adam, we left off in ancient Norfolk. And I want to come forward to like to more, although still a couple of thousand years, but more modern British Isles. You talk about a, a project, the British the people of the British Isles project, mm. which is uh, a recent attempt to to map the DNA of people of the UK, which has led to a lot of interesting and surprising conclusions about, you know, we all think, oh, you know, I come from East Anglia, therefore I'm obviously obviously come from the Vikings, mm. or like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Welsh, I'm obviously a Celt. And actually there's mm. a, a, a lot of doubt been put into that sort of thing. Now. Yeah, it was a brilliant study. I think it was my favourite study of that year. And it, it was, so basically what they did is they took DNA from uh, 2,039 living Brits. All of them, one of the criteria were that they had to have been born within 80 miles of their grandparents. And what, what that did is, is make sure they were sampling people who had been relatively stable. And also, crucially, it basically excluded much of the 20th century migration from the places that we used to call the colonies, so basically people like me. And then they, they took something like 10,000 samples from mainland Europe. And again, this is a statistical technique. So genetics has become a com- computational science because you're dealing with enormous amounts of data which wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to process without computer power. And what you, what you do is you, you get their genome samples from these, these 2,000 people. You plug them into a computer so they've got the sequence of the computer. And then you ask the computer using a particular type of software to group them together in the ones that are most similar to each other. Now, it's worth pointing out that me and you and everyone who's ever lived, our genomes are incredibly similar, 99.9999%. The differences between us are very, very slight. But we've got to the stage in genetics and human genetics now where we can detect the minorest, the most subtle, wispy differences between people. So we are basically all the same, but this level of fine-scale mapping is new, less than two years old. And so you ask the computer to group them together at this sort of scale. And then you ask the computer to place those groupings on the map. Now, everyone thought that what you'd get is sort of even distribution of all of those people and all those genotypes across 
across the country, like sort of pebbles on a beach. And what happened is we saw a really, really clear demarcation of different areas of the country based on similarities between people who'd, who'd been relatively stable for a long time. And what it looked like, and what it is, is basically a recapitulation of British history over several thousand years. And this is why it's stunning. Because being an island, we're interesting, we've been uh, invaded, and migration is slightly different for islands than it is for continuous land masses. But what we saw is lots of interesting stories from history, some of which verified history, some of which challenged. The challenges, I think, are the most interesting ones. So, for example, there's no such thing as Celts, right? You try telling that to people who say I'm Celtic, and they, they get quite cross. But basically, the, there are three groups of people that we refer to as Celts who are in uh, Cornwall, Cornwall and Brittany, so together, Wales and Scottish. Now, according to these data from the people of the British Isles, the Cornish Celts and the Welsh Celts and the Scottish Celts are more different from each other than they are from mainland Britain. So they're three distinct populations. They're not, they don't have a shared ancestry and they don't necessarily have a shared culture. So that's, that's one thing. And then we see things like when you compare the main body of, of the UK, which corresponds to Dane law, or, or before it, Roman, Roman Britain, and in those people you don't see... Danish Viking DNA or, or Danish DNA and you don't see Italian DNA so what does that say about history right the, the interpretation is it says that well, we had several hundred years of Roman and then several hundred years of Danish uh, rule Dane law but they didn't they didn't integrate they didn't leave their DNA they didn't have sex with the locals and uh, in, in a way that subsequent invaders such as the Angles and the Saxons and, and various other European invaders did and, and even even north of the border and um, where you see lots of Norwegian Viking DNA or lots of Norwegian DNA which indicates that they came and they did integrate in a nice way you know you even see weird stuff like the boundary <laughs> the difference between the people of Cornwall and the people of Devon is demarcated by the county line which is uh, you know that's an interesting... Which happens to be a river. So it does happen to be a river, and that's a good barrier to gene flow. But we didn't think we'd see that level of demarcation. So you've got this new tool which says we can challenge history by taking living people, looking at their DNA in a particular way, a very sophisticated statistical way, and saying, well, how does this correspond with the way that we think the history of this country has evolved? Um, and you know they're going to just sort of roll this technique out across the world from now on. Well, taking that to a, you know an even more extreme level, you talk about a similar project in Iceland. Mm. Um, but of course, Iceland is a place where they have these like incredible records anyway of like all the people who have ever lived in Iceland, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, Iceland is, is the geneticist dream. Uh, it's, it is my favourite country, apart from the, the UK, for, um, anyway, because it's so weird and beautiful. And, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's a geneticist dream for, for two or three reasons. One is it wasn't occupied before the 9th century. So the first people to come to Iceland are Norwegian and Danish Vikings. We do think there were some monks there beforehand, but they, they didn't leave children because monks are not meant to do that. Uh, so it's not occupied until the 9th century because, as you say, of the tradition of the sagas... Part, half of the sagas are, are myths and legends and about fighting trolls and pillaging and raping and, and 
drinking and those types of things. But uh, many of the sagas are really just genealogy records. They're records of people and families. And a, a bit like the begatting sections in the Bible. And what that means is that if you combine those two things, so the fact that the, it wasn't unpopulated until the ninth century, and they have genealogical records, it means that effectively we have known the names of every single person that's ever lived in this country. Also helped by the fact that the population has always been small, it's never gone above 400,000, so you know, about the size of, I don't know, Leicester. Ipswich. But anyway, what it, what, it, what it means is that we, we, do, we know the history of the people of this one island. And the geneticists realised this in the 90s and sort of capitalised on it by saying, well, now we've got this new tool, genetics, which enables us to do a similar sort of analysis. And so we know more about the genetics of the Icelanders than we do pretty much any nation on Earth. And they're fascinating, fascinating people. A common, not a myth, because it turns out to be true, but, you know, a a, a thing that everybody will have heard about, you know, about genealogy, about DNA, is that, you know, we're all related to famous people from the past yeah. or something, or, or kings. Um, and you talk in this book about this idea that, like, everybody in Europe now is related to, to Charlemagne. Yeah. So is that, is that, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is factually correct that. When I do this in the lectures, I say, you know, when I... I say it's not conceptual. I'm not. I'm not. You know, it's not metaphorical. This you are literally descended from Charlemagne. Basically, it's it's the difference between the way we talk about family trees and genealogy and the way families actually work. Most people pass through history without leaving ever any trace that they ever existed. When we do genealogy, and there's a great interest in tracing our own families, we tend to focus on the people who did leave a record, who did leave a mark, and it becomes harder and harder the further you get back through time. But of course, the people who really, for whom it is easier are royal families and people of political significance. And this is the basis of programmes like Who Do You Think You Are, which I love, love watching Who Do You Think You Are. But it's not a representative way of looking at the totality of your ancestors because you've got two parents and four grandparents and eight great-grandparents. And you keep going back like that and it doubles and it doubles and it doubles. When you do Who Do You Think You Are, you do your family tree, you're picking probably one person out of... 32 or 64 or 128 ancestors that you'll have at that point. So we also know that we can't keep doubling the number of ancestors that we have every generation because if you go back a thousand years, it means you've got two to the power of something like 30 ancestors, which is trillions. And, and that many people haven't existed. So what we now know is that family trees, they branch out from you and then at some point they start collapsing in on each other. Mm -hmm. So there's two key ideas in genetics and population genetics that are relevant here. One is the MRCA, the most recent common ancestor. So the most recent common ancestor of two first cousins is your grandparents. Uh, in genetics, you want to know the most recent common ancestor of huge populations. And when the calculations were done initially using maths and subsequently using genetics, the most recent common ancestor of Europeans occurred only 600 years ago. So what that means is that if we could draw a family, a perfect family tree for everyone, every European, then there would be at least one branch on everyone's family tree that crossed through one individual person round about 14 or 1500. Uh, and again, not metaphorically or not conceptually, actually. So our, our shared ancestry there is, is just so recent that I find it breathtaking. You know, actually shocking. 
And then the next time point of great interest is called the isopoint. And this is a bit trickier to explain because it feels really counterintuitive. But it's the point at which every branch on every living person's family tree crosses through every living person in the past. Right? So all of your, your, your family tree branches out from you and then it folds back on each other. And about five, five or six hundred years ago, it crosses, one branch will cross through one person. But it becomes so convoluted after that that there is a point in history where everyone's family trees crosses through every single individual. Right? And when those calculations were done, the answer came out at about the 10th century. So what that means is that if you were alive in the 10th century and you have descendants who are alive today, then those people were the ancestors of literally everyone alive today. Okay, so we think that about 75% of people alive in the 10th century Europe have ancestors alive today, and the other 25%, their lines died out at some point. So then you go, okay, so who do we know was alive in the 10th century? Well, we know that royal families were alive then because we have family trees Mm. to to prove it, written down. And you say, well, Charlemagne was the, the one we use. Charlemagne was alive in the 9th and 10th century. We know he has descendants alive today because you can do those family trees. And indeed, Christopher Lee, the great Dracula, Scaramanga, the Wicker Man, we know his family tree because he was descended. His mother was an Italian contess. And we know he was descended from Charlemagne. Richard Branson did his family tree and announced that too earlier this year, which is cool. Good for you, man, because it's true but it's true for literally everyone as well. Me and you might not be able to do our family tree mm-hmm. back to Charlemagne, but we can say with 100% certainty that it is as true for Richard Branson and Christopher Lee as it is for us. We're recording this a day after Danny Dyer was in the news, who's done Who Do You Think You Are? And it turns out that he's descended from William the Conqueror, I think it was, which is cool. 99% of British people are descended from William the Conqueror. Well, at that point, which is somewhere in, what did we say, 500, 600 years ago, when everybody in Europe is basically related, has a common ancestor, what is the point where everybody that's alive now in the world has a common ancestor? Yeah, three and a half thousand years ago. (laughs) And I love saying that because, again, what, how can that be the case? Uh, so yeah, yeah. So how how am I related to you know some tribes person in Polynesia or, or or you know an Aborigine or some some guy that lives in the middle of the Amazon jungle? Yeah, fair question. So so the the genetic isopoint point for everyone on Earth comes out according to the models at about three and a half thousand years ago, and when you and that's really conservative. When you loosen up the constraints, it goes to about three thousand six hundred years. So way way more recent than anyone ever thought, and way past those migratory patterns that we were talking about earlier when we you know people out of Africa 100,000 years ago 50,000 years to Europe and then they spread over the world there so but it's only in history during the time of you know the Egyptian empire or thousands of years after the Chinese had invented writing or the time of the ancient Greeks there is common ancestry for literally everyone everyone alive today is descended from everyone alive three and a half thousand years ago as you say how can you how can that be the case for south american tribesmen is a good one if it hadn't been for the conquistadors turning up in in the 16th century in south america and spreading their genes in the south american continent then your question would be correct then your challenge would be correct 
because they had been isolated for more than 20,000 years from the people of, of Beringia, so what is now the Bering Strait, who they migrated across from Asia and filled the Americas. But the fact that the conquistadors turned up and mated with the locals, it takes very few generations for bits of that DNA to filter through to literally everyone in South America. So tribes, people who've been isolated for otherwise thousands of years, it doesn't take many generational sexual encounters for that to filter through. And we now know that there are no people in South America who do not have European DNA in them. It, again, I think we find it hard to think about this because we think about families in a, in a very short time period. We think about our parents and our grandparents and our children. And beyond that, it immediately becomes murky and, and it branches out. But the conquistadors turned up 400 years ago. That's a lot of time for people to have sex and move around. And if there's one thing that humans are good at, it's having sex and moving around. That's two things. <laughs> I'm Alex Kratoski, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. Now, we've already established that I'm from Leicester. Yes. Um, Leicester, a place, incidentally, that, um, that has a, you know, a, a, a really good place in the, in the history of genetics. Yes. You know, gen- genetic fingerprinting was pioneered at Leicester University. Yeah. I can remember when the, uh, the first yeah. person was convicted, Colin Pitchfork, from a genetic fingerprinting. Yeah. But of course, being from Leicester, I obviously have to be obsessed <laughs> with Richard the Third. Yes, you do. So, um, so let, let's talk about the uh, the identification of Richard the Third and how that actually happened. Yeah. So the Ricardians are an amazing society based in in Leicester, who've been running for almost a hundred years now, I think. Uh, who, who are just interested in revisiting, possibly reassessing the historical place of Richard the Third. In history, because mostly we think about Richard as being a, a dastardly villain. I think mostly we think about Shakespeare's portrayal of Richard III, which is fictional. That, according to my <laughs> sources, Shakespeare was making this stuff up. So there is, I mean, it's one of the historical plays, and there's a lot of history in there. But I, don't, I, I think it, it's it's not a it's not a non-fiction account. So reassessing Richard. Is, is an interesting thing. And he, you know, he's, he is interesting historically for a number of reasons that you know, he's the last Plantagenet. He's the last um, king of that particular, the last ruler of that dynasty. And because he's beaten by Henry Tudor, uh, who becomes Henry VII, that is where the, the royal lineage that we currently have begins. So Bosworth. Bosworth is where it happens. And, and the, the contemporary accounts, which are quite slight, say he is he's killed on the battlefield he's he's paraded around stripped naked paraded around as the vanquished leader and buried without ceremony without pomp in greyfriars the monastery now that that's it right that's it for for um 500 years more than 500 years we don't know where that location is there's a couple of records so henry tudor henry the seventh uh, put a uh, a monument to him, an alabaster monument, about ten years after his death, and we only know that from a receipt. During the dissolution of the monasteries, Greyfriars is is uh, is dissolved by Henry VIII, and the bricks sold off, and then Greyfriars is gone. And you know this from being from Leicester. Greyfriars is an area mm-hmm. of Leicester, um, but there's no there's no surface remains of the monastery itself. So the Ricardians and the University of Leicester, and particularly uh, involving geneticists now, 
particularly um, an excellent scientist called Thierry King, got together using the paper trail initially to, f to try and identify where Richard's burial last resting place might be. Now, <laughs> on day one of the dig, which is amazingly lucky or, or possibly shows how good they were at doing the paper trail, they, they dug in, in a car park, the social services car park in Greyfriars in Leicester, out just outside a, a wall which they thought was similar in position to the wall, the external wall of the of the monastery. Day one, dig up, find a body. It's called Body One, and it's immediately of great interest for the following reasons. One, it's naked. So no traces of clothing, no traces of a burial shroud, no traces of a coffin. Uh, the second thing is, it's clearly, the grave is clearly too small for this body. The head is cocked forward at an uncomfortable angle. So this is someone who's been put in the ground in a hole that was not dug for them. Number three, it's the body's hands. It's a male. The body's hands are positioned on his right hip. Now, there's no trace of binding, but the suggestion is that this was a person whose hands were tied. Uh, the feet were missing, but we don't think that's, that's of any historical significance. It's been in the ground for that long that that might just be, you know, through gardening or building or something like that. So immediately you're thinking, wow, well, this is not a bad contender on day one. You get permission from the Crown to exhume the body, which is what you have to do for anybody. And it gets cleaned up. And the first immediate forensic pathology that is very obvious is that there is profound scoliosis in the spine. Now, scoliosis is a condition where your spine curves, normal spines curve in an S shape if you look um, sideways on. Uh, scoliosis occurs in an S shape if you look forward, front, front ways on. And it doesn't give you a humpback, but it does mean that one shoulder might be higher than the other. Mm -hmm. And the, the amount of scoliosis, the, how it was pronounced in this body, meant that the, the left shoulder would have been significantly higher. Now, immediately, you're like, wow, this is, this is the crookback. Richard Crookback is how he was written by Francis Bacon and others. You know, the crooked usurper is, what, is how Shakespeare describes him, this villain. So you do have, not a hunchback, but a guy with his shoulder significantly raised. Shakespeare has him with a withered arm. There's no evidence of this, this body being a withered arm. But yeah, then there's the pathology of the skull, which is a total mess. The two major, major head wounds, one... Um, a slice off the back of the occipital lobe, which probably would have been immediately fatal, uh, probably from a flat-bladed instrument weapon, something like a halberd. And then on the other side, there is a puncture also sort of underneath the occipital, which is the back bit of the head where the, so the neck joins the skull. And this is a smaller hole, but there's a scratch mark on the inside of the skull. So this is a spear or possibly the pointy bit of a halberd that has gone right through the skull to the extent that it's scraped through the brain and it's scraped the inside of the, inside of the skull. So, you know, again, major, major, almost certainly lethal head wound there. And you say, well, how does that tally with the history? So, because he would have been wearing armour. If this was the king, he would have been wearing armour. Jean of Molinet, who's one of the, the chroniclers of the time, says that he took his hat off in order to rally troops. Uh, you say, you know, I'm the king, here, here I am, I'm still fighting. So, again, possibly consistent with the, the contemporary narrative. And so there's loads of physical evidence. The fact that he has wounds on, his, on the bones of his hip indicate that he, he might have been stabbed, possibly through the buttocks, and that might be that he was slung over the back of the horse having been stripped naked, because he would have been covered by armour. Anyway. So that's all, yeah, that's all very interesting 
physical evidence. Yeah. But, you know, we don't know the veracity of all of those old stories. This is pretty circumstantial. It's so, a pretty good history, actually. And I think one of the reasons I love telling this story and why it's in the book is because this is really the high point of using DNA to complement traditional forms of history. So the paper trail leads them to the grave in the first place. Then there's physical trait, uh, using things like scanning technology to look through the ground, classic archaeology, or modern archaeology, in fact. Then there's the dig, and you get to the bones, and then you're into forensic archaeology or forensic pathology, and and you're looking at the forensics and and, and how this person would have died. So this is all older disciplines, and then the key to it is the DNA. Yeah, so let's get on to the DNA. Yeah. How does that change things? So you get DNA out of the bones, and then there are two strands of DNA that make up a very small proportion of your total DNA, but they're very useful to genealogists because they are only inherited through the male line or the female line. So the male line is the Y chromosome, which is only passed from fathers to son. And then there's the mitochondrial genome, which is only passed from mothers to children. So you take the DNA from the bones in the car park, and then using the family tree, and because he's royal, we know the family tree well, and you try and identify living people who are descended by the maternal and the paternal line. Two groups were were identified. On the male side, five living descendants who didn't want to be named, but they're named Somerset 1 to 5, were identified. And you compare the Y chromosome of them with the Y chromosome of the bones in the car park. And they were not the same. So there's a problem there. They did the the mitochondrial DNA and identified two living descendants, uh, Wendy Duldig and Michael Ibsen. And the mitochondrial DNA was identical in Michael Ibsen and differed by one letter in 37,000 in Wendy Duldig, which is unequivocal, beyond statistical noise evidence that the bones in the car park are the same matrilineage as the two living descendants. So that basically says it's Richard. The discrepancy in the Y chromosome says something equally interesting, which is that there is, at some point above Richard in his family tree, there is a cuckolding event. So someone hasn't been honest. Someone was, was fathered or mothered by someone who is not recorded in the family tree. We may never know who that person is, but it does, it does mean, it does technically, technically, it means that the current royal family is, is not biologically related to Edward III, <laughs> which is hilarious. I, you know, they, they have yet to comment. <laughs> I mean, the truth. The truth is that uh, Henry Tudor conquered in battle. That's where the, cl- the claim to the throne yeah. lies. Nevertheless, it is biologically true. We mentioned that I was. Uh, I'm from Leicester, the home of a uh, home of genetic fingerprinting. Yeah, you're from Suffolk. Yeah, which I mean, completely coincidentally, leads us on to talk about um, inbreeding. <laughs> so, um, Neil, come on, <laughs> let's talk about. I want to talk about Charles II, who was the last of the Habsburgs. Um, He wasn't a well-fellow, was he? No, I think this is my favourite story in the book, and I think there's enough distance between us and the end of the 17th century to to be slightly wry about his awful, troubled existence. But yes, he he was born profoundly disabled, physically disabled, mentally disabled, he had a suite of problems. He he couldn't he didn't learn to talk until very late, he didn't learn to walk until very late. He, his tongue was so swollen in his mouth that he couldn't retain food in it and his speech was garbled. He died at age thirty eight, sterile and infertile, hadn't left an heir, and he, he had a profoundly troubled life. His nickname was 
El Hechizado. So Carlos El Hechizado, which means the hexed or the bewitched. And the reason he was that bewitched and he had that hexed existence was because his family stopped outbreeding around about 150 years before he was born. So whereas you and I, including if I'm from Suffolk, thank you very much, I, I, we should have 256 people mm-hmm. eight generations back. Charles had something like 29. Mostly, yeah, it's just awful. It's awful. It's so tragic and appalling. And they're mostly intergenerational, so uncles with nieces. And when you look at his family tree, and I show it in lectures... People gasp because it, it's sort of incomprehensible as a family tree because it has loops in it, and you should never have loops in the family tree. And he has dozens. So his his grandmother was also his great grandmother on one side, and then and you can say that so many times about so many people in his family tree, and, and it all stems from one pairing: Joanna of Castile and Philip the Handsome. And Joanna of Castile, she had a nickname as well. She was known as La Loca which means the mad or the insane. And she had various mental health issues that we've tried to diagnose posthumously. But she occupies positions in three generations, uh, multiple positions in three generations. There are at least nine routes from Charles to her. And it basically means, when a couple of years ago, his inbreeding coefficient was, was calculated, which is basically a measure of how similar your genome is from your mother and your father. You inherit a copy from each. And it came out as 0.254. Now, if a brother and a sister successfully have a child, their inbreeding coefficient comes out as 0.25. So it meant that more than a quarter of his genes were identical on both sets of chromosomes from his parents. And that is bad, bad news. It means that the chance of a recessive disease emerging are extremely high. And in fact, we can't even diagnose what was wrong with him because there are so many genes expressed that should have been suppressed. It's an interesting story, it's kind of a fun story in a dark way, but it also says something about the relationship between genetics and history, because what follows is the collapse of the Habsburg Empire, mm-hmm. and a thir- the, the, the Spanish War of Succession, where various families are around Europe are contesting the Empire and the Holy Roman em- Empire, and it, it's the reason they inbred is because they wanted to hold on to power, they wanted to keep it in the family, and it, that is exactly the reason that they lost power forever. So I've been talking to Adam Rutherford about his book, A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, The Stories in Our Genes, um, which is out now. Adam, thanks for coming in again and sharing it with us. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.